Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 29. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind. It is a truth universally acknowledged. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Steve is going to start off this podcast with a couple of his limericks. Well, limericks, limericks are short, so this won't take long. This one's called Fedora. I have a green pet dinosaur that wears a non-matching fedora. But my aunt, for a peso, was willing to say so. We won't see poor Nora no more. And this one is Telegraph. A killer sent a telegraph, but it did not go through. The young and scared telegrapher had only tapped a few. The murderer in anger thumped the typist with brute force. The message, then, was not re-keyed. No, there was no remorse. Thank you, sweetheart. I'm going to read some more from the story of Ralph and Mary Carey, my Aunt Hazel's summary of my grandparents' life on their Wyoming homestead. The time frame for this piece of their story is uh, about 1915 to 1920. At this time, Wyoming had no range laws, and there were no fences. People who raised cattle allowed them to roam free and feed on the grass, checking them occasionally to see that they did not stray too far. One neighbor was especially careless about taking care of his cattle, and Mary had to run to drive them out of the grain that had been gathered and stored. At times, the cows even attempted to drink from their barrel of precious water. One day, Ralph brought home a little black dog named Jack. He was sure Jack could be trained to chase the cows and so relieve Mary of this chore. How excited the boys were when they saw the cows headed for the corn pile. Jack would chase them, bite their legs, and save the day. But, much to their disappointment, Jack was afraid of the cows and refused to leave the house while they were near. This day, Mary felt desperate and so angry at the cows and the helplessness she felt about it all that she loaded up the shotgun, ran out, aimed into the herd, and fired. Boom! What a kick the gun had! Mary, somewhat subdued, picked herself up, rubbing her shoulder, which would carry a bruise for several days. Jack did give them one exciting day. A neighbor came to visit, driving a Model T Ford. When he tried to crank the car to leave, old Jack came leaping out and grabbed the seat of his pants. So the man ceased cranking until Jack calmed down. When he attempted to crank again, Jack grabbed hold again. The boys finally held the dog until the neighbor could get away. In the winter of 1916, many of the people in the Hudson Valley were very ill with the flu bug. Mary and Ralph were, too, and finally reached the point of weakness, or perhaps a state of delirium, that they could no longer keep the fire going. They awoke to the noise of someone in the house. A neighbor, who was also a distant relative, 
had stopped by to see about them. He was building the fire. The Careys were thankful for a good friend who cared and who came just in time. For a short while, in 1917, Ralph worked for a farmer near Wheatland who furnished houses for his hired help. Mary and the children were able to move there so they could be together. During this time, Nellie May was born. They were able to pay for a doctor to come to the house for her birth. In 1918, Ralph built a two-room frame house about a half mile to the north of the homestead. It was much nicer and roomier. Relatives were always welcome at the Carries. Ralph's parents came to visit several times. Even in the small house, they were made to feel welcome. Mr. Goble, Mary's dad, spent several winters with them. He always brought his fiddle and made the evenings lively with his music. Mary especially liked this. She used to say, I was raised on fiddle music. Hazel Inez was born in 1918 in this home in the Hudson Valley. The Careys were anxious to have a school near enough for the children to walk to. Leonard, at age eight, attended a school two and a half miles away. It was such a worry to see him walk so far, and his attendance was erratic. Finally, it was decided to build a school on the school section three-quarters of a mile to the south of the Carey Place. Ralph, with a team and wagon, hauled the cement, lumber, and other materials needed to build the school. They piled sacks of cement in the kitchen where it would keep dry until needed, but this way it broke the floor. The school was finally built and was named Carey School in appreciation of the effort Ralph and Mary made to have a place of education for their family. The five oldest graduated for the eighth, from the eighth grade there. Finally, or later, as many little country schools were consolidated, the Carey School was no longer needed. But while the echoes of its last students faded long ago, the building itself can still be seen today, used now as a bunkhouse on the Hal Ashenhurst Place, about five miles from its original location. And I have to say that Aunt Hazel wrote this summary in 1980, so I can't guarantee that the schoolhouse turned bunkhouse is still on the Ashenhurst Place. Um, but if you happen to drive east of Wheatland, Wyoming, you might check it out. to welcome Michelle Netton and her son Ryan. They are our guests today. They author and illustrate a colorful children's book series called Cheer eBooks. That's C-H-E-E-R dash eBooks. The stories feature critters like bats, turtles, penguins, and dinosaurs. Their latest book is titled The Mystery of the Missing Morton. Or I should say that, The Mystery of the Missing Morton. <laughs> and which was just released, and even throws in a human or two. Michelle writes the stories, and Ryan, Ryan illustrates them. We'll begin this segment with a short sound clip from a video Ryan made. After you hear it, you'll want to go online to watch him draw the book characters. We'll provide a link on the website. Following that, Michelle and Ryan will read from The Mystery of the Missing Morton. I'm Ryan and I'm the executive illustrator for Cheery Books. I'm 13 and I've illustrated four books. In order, there are Simon, Artie, Teddy, and Morton. 
Out of order, there are Morton, Teddy, Artie, and Simon. I first drew Simon when I was 8 or 9 years old, like a beta version of the character. Then I drew Artie, the book, when I was 10 years old. And I worked on Teddy's book when I was 11 and 12. I started working on Morton when I was 12, and I just turned 13 in July. However, Morton, our newest book, has come as a challenge to my intellectual drawing superbness. Because of mainly drawing animals, I'm drawing children. It was difficult to draw kids. Faces are hard because of their facial expressions, as well as imitating a real person's body structure. It was also challenging to have the kids look the same from scene to scene, even as their expressions and actions change. I would say the first 12 pictures or so were the most difficult, and then I got the hang of it as I did more pictures. This book also has large backgrounds and specific details, which is also new for me as an artist. But I really love drawing and would like to encourage kids, especially, to take the time to draw and develop skills. I personally prefer to draw using a pencil. That's my favorite, but anything else is good, even finger painting. The Mystery of the Missing Morton Morton the Turtle Has Gone Missing Timothy woke up Saturday morning at 8.30. He got up and got dressed in his most comfortable jeans like he did every Saturday. Then he brushed his teeth and went down to the kitchen for some orange juice like he always did. He also got food for his turtle Morton, just like every morning. But when he went to Morton's cage to give him his breakfast, Morton was not there. This was not like any other morning. Morton was always in his cage, but today his cage door was open and Morton was gone. Timothy was pretty sure he had closed the door last night after giving Morton his dinner. But where was Morton now? Morton! Morton, where are you? Timothy called. Of course, Morton didn't answer, nor did he appear. Timothy sat down on his bed and thought, If I were a turtle, where would I go? Uh, I have no idea, was his answer. It was hard to think like a turtle. So Timothy began looking around. First he looked in his room, then down the hall. He checked the den, the living room, and the kitchen. He looked under the table and behind the sofa and TV. He looked under the rugs. He knew Morton couldn't climb high, so he kept his search low to the ground, but Morton was nowhere to be found. What could have happened between last night and this morning? Timothy thought back to last night when he put turtle food in Morton's cage. Did I remember to close the door after I said goodnight, Morton? But Timothy was positive he had closed the cage door because he remembered it squeak so loudly he'd gone into the den and asked if his dad would oil it. His dad said he would do it this weekend. Had Morton opened his cage door and walked off? Timothy wanted to ask his mother if she'd seen him, but he knew what he'd hear. You've lost, Morton, she would say. You told us that you were responsible enough to care for a pet. His mom had said when he turned nine, he could have a pet. Since they lived in an apartment, he couldn't have a horse or a wolf like he wanted, so Timothy had decided on a turtle. He'd had Morton about three months now. The first two weeks he had played with Morton all the time, but after that he played with him less and less. Now, just about the only time he opened the cage was to give him turtle food and water. Timothy felt bad about that, but promised himself that when he found Morton, he'd make it all up to him. Timothy tried to think like a detective. That was easier than trying to think like a turtle, but not by much. Timothy wondered if Morton could have figured out how to open the door to his cage. The door was easy to open for a person. You just lifted the latch. But he thought, 
If I were Morton, could I ever do that? He was back to trying to think like a turtle. Timothy decided to ask his friend Sidney to help. Sidney could be kind of annoying sometimes because he thought he knew everything. But Sidney actually did know a lot and got all A's at school. Sidney was not only smart, but a good friend, and Timothy knew some brainy ideas were sure needed now. Sidney was in front of his apartment when Timothy arrived. Hey, Sid, Timothy called. Am I glad to see you? What's up? And by the way, the name is Sidney, he said. Sidney always made everyone call him Sidney instead of Sid. I'll get right to the point, Timothy began. Morton is missing and I need your help. What do you need me to do? Sidney asked. Help me look for him. I'm not sure how long he's been gone. All I know is that he was here for dinner last night and gone for breakfast. Somehow he got out of his cage and I can't find him anywhere in the house. Did you leave the cage door open? Sidney wanted to know. The way he said it made Timothy feel like Sidney thought he had, but he just said, No, I'm really 100% sure I didn't, but the door was open this morning. Peculiar, quite peculiar, Sidney said. Have you looked all through your house? Everywhere I could think of, but he wasn't there. Then he must have gotten outside somehow. Were any of the doors open in your apartment? Sidney asked. I don't think so, Timothy said, and then stopped. No, wait. Mom was carrying the laundry out early this morning, and she had propped the door open. He could have gotten out then. Oh no, Morton doesn't know how to survive outside. I disagree, said Sidney. Turtles were meant to be outside. It's their natural habitat. They weren't meant to live in cages. Okay, okay, Timothy interrupted. This isn't a science lesson here. I need help finding Morton. We've got to look for him. They looked all around Timothy's apartment building. They looked in puddles, in the grass, under stairs, and behind garages. They found a baseball they last lost last summer and an old frisbee, but no Morton. Timothy was getting quite worried by now. I hope Morton is okay. We've just got to find him. He's my friend. Since when? Sidney asked. I hardly ever see you play with him anymore. He had to be bored, bored, bored. He should have been in a real big fish tank with water and rocks to climb on. Maybe Morton just wanted to have some fun. Well, I feed him and give him water every day. Timothy defended himself. But he actually felt pretty guilty because he knew what Sidney said was true. As soon as he found Morton, he would make it all up to him. Why don't you try putting some of his food out and see if he comes to eat it, suggested Sidney. Good idea. It's worth a try. Timothy went into his house and got some turtle food and sprinkled it around outside. They continued to search. Suddenly, Timothy called out, Hey, some turtle food is gone, but I don't see Morton. Sidney ran over. Yep, some food's gone, but who could have... Sidney started to say. Then he said, Look over there. Timothy turned around and saw a large cat he'd seen before around the apartment buildings. It was swallowing the last bit of turtle food they'd put on the ground. When the cat saw them looking at him, he ran off. Oh no, Timothy said quietly. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Sidney was thinking exactly what Timothy was thinking, but he didn't want to say it. What if... Timothy couldn't get the words out. Maybe turtle food wasn't the only thing the cat had eaten. He suddenly realized this situation was serious. We learned a bit about Ryan and his, and his art in the clip we just played. 
I'd like to learn a little bit more about your writing history, Michelle. So I have questions for you. Uh, Were you one of those kids who made up stories to tell your friends and your siblings when you were young? And uh, did you also um, love writing assignments in school? Um, I was one of those kids who liked to make up stories, but more I would write them rather than tell them. Sometimes I would tell them, but um, probably my earliest memories in fifth grade, my teacher, Mr. Shotbell, gave the class an assignment to write a story about um, choosing a noun, a verb, and an action word. And I wrote this outlandish, crazy story about a spaceship and a flying pomegranate and all kinds of crazy things in it. And he told me at the end of that, and it stuck in my mind, he said, you're going to be a writer. And that was the first time anyone had ever said that to me. And um, I kind of forgot about it until years later when I actually (laughs) did become a writer. And uh, I appreciated his endorsement. Also, I didn't love writing assignments, but they didn't scare me as much as I saw scaring other students. People would just be dreading a writing assignment. And for me, it wasn't that difficult. And so I realized I just really liked working with words and language and that uh, the syntax and the grammar part came kind of easy to me. So that's how I got started. Did you take creative writing classes or journalism in college or major in a related subject? I did. In my undergraduate degree, I had a minor in writing, and then I went on to get an MA in English. And we were allowed to choose our area of emphasis in the MA, and I chose creative writing. I could have chosen technical writing or literature, but I chose creative writing. And that forced me to write, have to write short stories and poetry and a master's thesis, including those pieces that I wrote. And that was intimidating. That didn't come as easy as my story in fifth grade. (laughs) But that was when my real true love of writing started to come out. And um, it actually changed the course of my life. What triggered your interest in writing for children? During my undergraduate degree, which initially was preparing me to teach elementary school, um, which I didn't end up doing, I ended up writing instead and earning a living as a writer, but I had taken a children's literature class, and the woman who taught that class was very engaging and very enthusiastic about children's literature, and one of our assignments throughout the semester was to read a hundred or more children's books, including young adult and all ages. And in the process of doing that, I thought it would be kind of fun to try my hand at it myself. So after that class, the next semester, they were offering a new class for the first time writing for children. So I signed up for that. um, And I was then forced to write children's stories. So I started out and actually the, this story about Morton was the very first children's story I ever wrote. So how did you and Ryan um, come up with the idea of working together on books? I had the desire to publish the stories um, quite a few years ago. And for illustrations, I was thinking that I would just use clip art and find um, pictures of a turtle or our other stories are about penguins and bats and dinosaurs. But... Um, I didn't really like 
what I was finding, it didn't quite suit the character, or if it did, I realized it would quickly get expensive to purchase so much of the same character, or there just wasn't availability of the same character in many different scenes. And by that time, Ryan was probably seven or eight years old, and I asked him just one day to draw a penguin, which is the first book we actually published. And he drew this penguin, which was just the perfect character for the story on his first try. So that got the wheels turning in my head. I'm not sure they were turning yet in his head. (laughs) But um, that's what got us started. And then he learned how to draw scenes of the characters and how to draw the characters in multiple scenes throughout a book and have it always have the consistency of looking like it was the same character, even though the expressions and the action in the book would be changing all the time. And he has a real knack for it. So that's how we got started. Yes, his characters are are very cool. We'll talk more about those in a bit. Um, your early cheer ebooks uh, featured animals. How did you come to include children in your latest book? I had written a lot of the of children's stories in that class that I mentioned, and a couple of them um, had gotten some really good feedback from the class and even from some editors. So I just chose a random order to start publishing the books. And the first three that we did just were about animals. Um, And I was kind of putting off this latest one because I wanted us to have a little more experience because I knew drawing children would be tougher. It turned out to be a little tougher than both of us even anticipated. It's difficult to draw faces and have that um, repeated character in scene to scene and have them look the same, um, but different as they're expressing different emotions or doing different activities. And Ryan did find that really challenging, and but he worked at it. And the more that he did it, the more comfortable he got. And now, as shows in the uh, video that you'll play a clip from, he can draw it very easily now, the characters, kids, and the animals. Um, and there's a sequel to this story that if we end up doing that, I hope he remembers how we did it. <laughs> how to do well, and that was my last question. Do you have um, any other future prog- future projects in mind? Yes, there is the second story with the same characters, another mystery with the same characters, um, a different situation. And then I have uh, one more story that I would be interested in publishing. And then if we keep going, I will be forced to write new stories. <laughs> and I don't have ideas for those yet. <laughs> Thank you. Um, now I have some questions for Ryan. If you can hop over here to the microphone. Have you had any art training? Uh, I have had art training, but I feel like I was too advanced for the classes that I was in. And I just sort of based off my own artistic ability and just advanced from there. But I realized I didn't really need classes and I could get farther on my own. Okay. Um, this may be a little early, little early to ask since you're in middle school, or maybe it's called junior high, but I'm wondering if you're thinking of attending art school when you graduate from college. I feel like uh, that would give me a sort of a bigger picture of drawing rather than in elementary school when I took my original classes. But I feel like in college, if I did take an art class, I could advance in both drawing, photography, and maybe painting and I feel like that would get me farther in life, I guess. Farther in my drawing life, probably. 
Very cool. One last question, and I promise not to tell your teachers or your mother. Do you doodle in class? Yeah, I'm pretty guilty for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'll get my test back and I'll probably just start rambling on about how good of a drawer I am. And then my friend actually be like, oh, hey, you know, you're, you're good at drawing and you're left-handed. I'm like, yeah, I sure am. And then I'll start drawing all my tests, all my teachers explaining about how we all missed a question or something. I'll be drawing out my little dragon or whatever. So, yeah. <laughs> so I bet your teachers enjoy your additions. <laughs> well, thank you both for um, spending some time with us. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing more cheery books. Thanks, Michelle and Ryan. That was fun. Thank you. Now I'm going to read um, an article by David Roper. This is called Spend Time Talking with God About Little Things. Noah walked with God, Genesis 6-9. Noah had a special way of doing everything because he walked with God. Walking is metaphor, of course, one that suggests intimacy and companionship. It tells us why Noah was extraordinary among the men and women of his time. Noah had his ordinary days, Monday mornings when he didn't want to go to work. The ark was a drag, taking up space in his driveway, trashing up the neighborhood, amusing and offending his neighbors. Furthermore, there were tremendous practical and logistical problems to be solved. No one had ever tackled an ark before. But Noah stayed on with the project, building his boat on dry land far away from rivers or lakes, while the sun continued to shine, waiting 120 years for a rainy day. Mundane stuff. For this was what God had asked what God had asked him to do. Here's an interesting note. Noah did everything just the way God said. Genesis 6:22. He followed God's ark building instructions to the letter. But I don't think for a minute that God handed him a list of things to do. That badly misses the metaphor of walking. I think Noah just walked with God all through the day and talked things over with him. Every day, Noah took his cares and complaints to God. His concern over impending catastrophe and fear for his family and friends. But he also talks with God about the little things. The length of the planks, the height of the partitions, and the pitch with which he made his super ship watertight. And later on, when he set sail, he and his friend must have taken a few turns around the deck and talked about the duty roster, the leaks in the hold, and the rations of food and fodder with which he fed his motley crew, all factors that might have stressed him out and made him anxious and too intense. No topic was too banal to be brought to God. They walked and talked together about everything, and as I said, that's what set Noah apart from other men and women. St. John of the Cross says that walking with God produces three distinguishing characteristics, tranquility, gentleness, and strength. When he's by our side, all our actions can be peaceful, gentle, and strong. That suggests an immense uh, immense depth of relationship that comes from time spent with one who works always in tranquility. 
anxiety, intensity, intolerance, instability, pessimism, and every kind of hurry and worry are signs of the self-made and self-acting soul. God's men and women are seldom of that order. They share the quiet and noble qualities of the one with whom they walk. That's by David Roper. David Roper is the author of 14 books. Just in case you'd like to hear more of his wise words, the most recent book is titled Teach Us to Number Our Days. You can check him out on Amazon. David, R-O-P-E-R. Uh, you can also uh, take a look at his blog spot, davidroper.blogspot.com. And uh, he's got a whole bunch of really interesting musings for you there. I am going to continue with our reading of Winds of Wyoming, and we're in Chapter 5 now. Mike hung his muddy cowboy hat on a railing post before he settled into a patio chair. Cyrus eyeballed the hat. You'll have to drive clear to Laramie or Rollins to get that bonnet cleaned. Yeah, I know. Cost you an arm and a leg. Mike eyed Cyrus's bedraggled Stetson with its grease-rimmed crown. That why you never get yours cleaned? Cyrus clamped his jaw and looked away. Don't need to. Laura opened the screen door. Mike, can you take this? He stood and held the door for her. She handed him a plate of cookies. Hang on, I'll get the lemonade. She returned, carrying a pitcher in one hand and three glasses in the other. I added lots of sugar to the lemonade. Just for you, Cyrus. Appreciate it, ma'am. That stuff's so potent it can make your earlobes shrivel. Well, we certainly wouldn't want that, would we? Mike studied Cyrus's long, creased earlobe and decided it could use some shriveling. He reached for a cookie, though he wasn't hungry. All he wanted to do was change his clothes and drive back down to the pasture to fix the fence before the bison got wise to the temporary fix. But his mom would worry if he didn't eat at least one. Laura filled their glasses and sat down. Tramp laid his chin in her lap. His gaze focused on the cookies. She gave him one, which he consumed in a single bite, before turning to her son. Tell us what happened today. Mike described the ATV trail and the damaged fence. Cyrus's eyelids narrowed into raisin-like clumps. Low-down, dirty scumbag. Mike told them about Tramp and the stray calf and the buffalo that rammed Old Blue. Laura's eyes widened. Oh my goodness, Mike. I'm glad you jumped out. She leaned toward him. Don't worry about Dad's truck. You are far more important than that beat-up old thing. Mike shook his head. How many times did he say he'd never sell or trade Old Blue? It was the best truck he ever had. He loved it. He loved you infinitely more than that pickup. If he was here, he'd say you did the right thing. Uh-uh. Mike tapped an angry rhythm on the table. He'd be upset about the way I handled the situation. Tears dampened her eyelashes. Your father is gone. She waited a moment before speaking again. He is not a part of this conversation. You don't get it, Mom. Mike jumped to his feet. I ruined Dad's truck. Plus, I left a big gap in the fence. You know, I'm sitting here sipping lemonade while thousands of dollars of bison burgers walk through that hole. And God only knows how many other holes. 
Do you have any idea how hard it'll be to find those animals and move them back to the pasture? He grabbed his hat and plopped it onto his head. A chunk of dirt dropped to his shoulder. Buffalo don't herd well, you know. He started for the back door. Tramp hopped up to follow. Cyrus cleared his throat. Hold on a dadgum minute. I'll round up a couple of the hands. We can fix the fence and haul the truck back here before dark. Mike balled his fingers into fists. Why did he come to Cyrus when he could have asked Rusty or Clint or one of the other guys to help? He pivoted. I'm sure you mean well, but you're not my dad. I'll take care of it myself. Cyrus opened his mouth, but Mike cut him off. The truck and the fence are my problems. So are the buffalo and the jerk that cut that wire. He stomped into the house, tramp at his heels. He shouldn't have told them about the accident. The ranch's modest entry consisted of a tall pole portal and a cattle guard. At least that's what Kate thought they called the flat metal grate that spanned the dirt road. An iron whispering pines guest ranch sign swayed from the top beam. Her new home, at least for the summer. The Honda's tires rasped across the cattle guard, reminding her of the cafe's parking lot and the fact she left Copperville too fast to eat lunch or buy crackers. The crackers, at least, would have settled her stomach, which lurched with each jolt. Kate parked in front of a log building with a wide porch. Red window boxes with bright flowers accented the exterior, and a large wooden arrow with the word office painted on it was attached to the wall beside the door. Two deer nibbling at the tulips that skirted the rock foundation lifted their heads to watch her for a moment before silently disappearing behind the building. She turned the engine off but remained seated, listening to a breeze rustle through the aspen trees that shaded the porch and wishing she could be more excited about seeing deer outside of a zoo. This was the most monumental day of her life, other than her release, and she wanted to crawl in a hole and never come out. She had so fervently hoped to eradicate her past and begin her life anew. But her past was as close as her shadow. She could smell its foul breath and feel its evil claws at her back. Still wearing her sunglasses, Kate stepped from the car. Even though she was a child of the light, not the dark, she needed to hide her bloodshot eyes. The sharp slap of a screen door made her jump. She looked looked up. Oh, hello. A twenty-something man with a hat-sculpted hair and a white forehead stood on the veranda holding a dirty cowboy hat. Can I help you? I have an appointment with Laura Duncan. Appointment? His left eyebrow arched. She's expecting me. No particular time. The collie that tailed the man clambered down the steps to sniff Kate's shoes and nudge its nose under her fingers. She scratched behind its ears, enjoying the soft warmth of the fur and the dog's apparent appreciation. How many years had it been since she touched an animal other than Prissy? She smiled, wondering what her great-aunt's little cocker-spaniel poodle-mixed city dog would think of this big country dog. We don't take guests without a reservation. I'm an employee. He looked her up and down. So you're the one. He aimed a thumb at the door behind him. Ring the bell inside. She'll come talk to you. Thanks. The man knocked the hat against his leg before placing it on his head. Come on, Tramp. He limped across the porch and down the wheelchair ramp at the end. Tramp licked her hand before chasing after him. Kate watched them go. Beautiful dog. But the cowboy was about as friendly as a constipated correctional officer. She found the bell on a counter between racks of tourist brochures and handcrafted soaps and candies. 
After ringing the bell, she turned to survey her surroundings. In the far corner, a life-size log bear with a chiseled smile dangled a sad-eyed wooden fish from an outstretched paw. In the other corner, overstuffed leather chairs and a love seat faced a rock fireplace. She was scrutinizing the huge animal head above the fireplace when a side door opened and a petite, middle-aged woman stepped into the room. The woman smiled. That's Mangy. He's our mascot. But what is it? An elk? No, it's a moose. Our son bagged it when he was a teenager. I've never seen a moose before. He's, um... The woman laughed. Homely? Is that what you're looking for? The word you're looking for? Kate grinned. Kind of ugly. Kind of cute. That says it. You should see their calves. Really funny-looking little guys. All legs. She extended her hand. I'm Laura Duncan. Are you by any chance Kate Nielsen? Yes, I am. Kate shook her hand. Welcome to the Whispering Pines. Did you have a good trip? Until Copper, Copperville, Kate thought. This is my first time to travel across the country. The further west I drove, the more I enjoyed the scenery, especially Colorado and Wyoming. You timed it right. We've had several years of drought, but last winter both states received lots of snow, so the wildflowers are gorgeous this spring. She led Kate through the side door and a hallway to a living room. You have a nice home. I love the wood floors. They were lighter color and didn't creak as much as the highway haven floors. Thank you. A wistful look crossed Laura's face. Dan and I built this place ourselves when we bought the ranch almost 35 years ago. She directed Kate toward the dining room. Care for some cookies and a glass of lemonade? Sounds wonderful. Thank you. Have a chair and help yourself to a cookie. I'll get you a glass and a napkin. Cyrus, say hello to Kate Nielsen from Pittsburgh. Kate, that's Cyrus Moore. We're in the middle of making a supply list. Kate hadn't seen the man hunkered in the dark corner. She moved her sunglasses to the top of her head. Hi, Cyrus. Sorry to interrupt your meeting. He stood to shake her hand. No problem. He was short, wiry, and weathered, with a voice that reminded her of driving over gravel and cattle guards. She felt calluses in his firm grip. He motioned to Laura, who was pouring lemonade for Kate. We barely got going after the last interruption. Laura shook her head. It's been quite an afternoon. She set the pitcher down. And all the craziness lately, I'm not sure I told you about Kate joining our staff. No, ma'am. Please sit, both of you. She moved the cookie platter in front of Kate and took a seat. Kate just earned a marketing degree from the University of Pittsburgh. She'll do her internship with us this summer and possibly become a year-round employee. My plan is for her to learn the ropes of running a guest ranch. Everything we can teach her about her operation with an emphasis on marketing, which should enable her to fulfill her internship requirements, plus give us an extra hand when we're busy. As Kate and I have discussed, she turned to Kate, after Labor Day, we'll talk about whether or not the WP is the best place for you to continue your career. Sounds fair, Kate bit into a cookie, praying her stomach was ready for food. Cyrus looked from Laura to Kate and back again, one eyebrow cocked. Laura continued. Cyrus has been with us for 23 years. He knows the whispering pines inside and out. Though he builds great fences and can fix the plumbing and groom the horses, during the summer months we use his culinary talents in the dining hall. You'll eat there as part of your compensation. I appreciate that. Thank you. 
Maybe she could survive without cash after all, at least for a couple weeks. We're still contemplating how to divide the workload this first summer without Dan. Laura's voice faltered. I, I told you about my husband's death from cancer, didn't I? Yes, Kate nodded. I'm so sorry. It must be very difficult for you and your family. It's been hard for all of us, but we'll make it through this, won't we, Cyrus? Yes, ma'am. We're book solid this all summer, which is a good thing, but a bit scary. Dan was our rock. Laura lifted the lemonade pitcher. More? Kate and Cyrus both shook their heads. Laura filled her own glass before setting the pitcher on the table. She motioned to Cyrus. I think we've done enough for today, Cyrus. Would you please take Kate to her cabin and help her with her luggage? Sure thing, Mrs. D. He retrieved a gray cowboy hat from a rack by the door. I'll get the key. Where's she bunking? I think the Blue Jay would be good. It has a kitchen. Laura winked at Kate. For late night snacks, when the dining hall is closed, of course, plus an extra pretty view. But you'll need to air it out. I meant to open the windows this morning and got distracted. That's okay. I can open them. Kate finished her lemonade and slipped her sunglasses down before following Laura and Cyrus into the lobby. Laura touched her arm. We'll talk more tomorrow, and you'll meet the rest of the staff. In fact, you just missed my son, Mike. He'll be helping with the guest ranch side of the operation this summer. Although that's not his forte. He prefers to work with the animals, especially his buffalo herd. Cyrus snorted as he came from behind the counter, key in hand. Loves them ugly critters like there was something lovable about them. Myself, I'm a cattleman. He plunked his hat on his head. Kate grinned, thinking the scruffy hat must have tumbled more than once across the windy Wyoming prairie. Just to let you know, I know the difference between a regular poem and a limerick. And next time, maybe I'll get that one right. For now, though, we're going to sign off. That's it for now. See you next time. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.